Welcome to Content Disrupted, bold takes on brand marketing. I'm your host, Casey Noble, and together we'll explore what it takes to excel in brand marketing at one of the most exciting and disruptive times in industry history. All right, so welcome back to Content Disrupted. Joining us today is brilliant B2B marketing expert, Ardith Alby. She's the CEO of Marketing Interactions, a firm that specializes in creating buyer personas and digital marketing strategies for B2B companies with complex sales. She spent four years on the 50 most influential people in sales and lead management list. She's a frequent speaker, and she's the author of two books, e-marketing strategies for the complex sale and digital relevance. And I actually have my copy of digital relevance over here next to me on the bookshelf. So happy to dive into that as well. It's a brilliant book. I encourage folks to check it out for sure. Ardith, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming. Well, thanks so much, Casey. It's great to be here. So I am so excited to have you on. You're a thought leader who really approaches strategy, I feel like, with such intellectual rigor and fresh insight. Every time I read something you've written, I'm just one of those people nodding my head. It's like, yes, yes, she nailed it. That's exactly how it is. So exciting to get to pick your brain a little bit. But before we dive into B2B marketing strategy, I would love if you could, just for the benefit of our listeners, share a little bit about your professional journey and how you developed your expertise in B2B marketing. Yeah, well, actually, I'm not a marketer by training. I didn't go to school for it. But all the way back in the year 2000, I was the only non-techie in a tech company. Think first ever iteration of like marketing automation and website software that marketers could run themselves. And if you think back to 2000, companies basically had brochures and they took their brochures and put them online and said, okay, we're now digital. No, 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 no. And so our customers were saying, well, nothing's changed. You know, we're not seeing any great value from this. And of course, way back in the day, it was expensive custom installs and that kind of thing. We didn't have SaaS. So I started as a writer and I have a degree in English literature as well as business. And so I started looking at their websites and I thought, oh my God, who wants to read this? So I started helping revamp their content. And one of my passions is fiction writing. And so I've spent years studying fiction, going to retreats with best-selling authors and learning how to build characters and all of this. And that learning transitioned into, well, who are you talking to? Which became buyer personas. And a lot of that fed into the methodology because when you think about a fiction book, a novel is about 400 words or 400 pages. It's 100,000 words. You've got to create a character strong enough to stand up through all of that, right? Going on a journey through that whole story. And for a lot of the companies we were doing business with, their sale was a complex one and their sales cycle could take a year or at least eight months, six to eight months, or maybe even longer. And so they needed to be able to tell stories. And so I started working with them. And by 2007, I had enough demand that I chose to leave the tech company and start my consultancy. And I walked into consulting with a whole book of clients, right, that came with me. And so that was fabulous. And it was kind of like one of those right place, right time moments that, you know, you get once in a lifetime and just happen to be mine. And it's been a blast ever since. But I think, interestingly, I've been consulting for, well, let me think about this now, 2007 to 
13, 14 years when one of my clients asked me to become their interim VP of marketing for a while. They were going through a reorg. And so I did that and they promised a few months and it ended up being a little over a year, (laughs) at which time I discovered that I'm really not a corporately employable person. But the benefit for me was that I had been doing consulting for a long time and project-based work where I'd go in and do some of it. Maybe I'd build personas. Sometimes I'd stay on to build the content strategy and help with execution. But a lot of the times I wouldn't. And so my view of the entire marketing organization was kind of outdated. And so being able to be their VP of marketing and rebuild a team and get my hands on platforms like the latest version of HubSpot and Sixth Sense and Salesforce and see how everything works together and a variety of other platforms and follow things all the way through from creating the foundation to building the strategy to doing the execution to looking at the analytics to driving revenue and actually see that all of the work that I had been doing over the years was validated that it worked, that it actually worked because, hey, that'd be great. And I I knew that because my clients, a lot of them, in fact, almost I hardly have any new clients. They all keep coming back for more, you know, redo our personas. We need a new content program, whatever. And so it was really fun for me to see that this stuff actually works when you do it well. And so that was pretty cool. Yeah, I love that connection between character building and persona building, because I do think the the principles are the same. And when you have that sort of writer bone, that writer instinct and that innate ability to kind of empathize, I feel like empathy is really the key and the ability to put yourself truly in someone else's shoes and share a mindset Unfortunately, we don't have as much control, I guess, over our our buyers and who's going to come in and out of the door as we do a character set, right? So I think you've highlighted a lot of those challenges and practical strategies for dealing with that. So I wanted to kind of talk about that too and, and kind of what's changed. And you had written a LinkedIn article. I don't know how long it's been up, but it was fresh and shocking and cool to me. I saw this stat from an Allen agency survey that you highlighted. It's that only 1% of the C-suite decision makers surveyed believe that B2B marketing showed a meaningful understanding of the human experience, which is pretty ouch. I mean, that's a major misalignment. And then you went on to talk about how this was kind of due to a, I guess, a culmination of kind of bad habits in B2B marketing, and you described that as the kiss of beige, which I thought was brilliant. So I would love if you can, for listeners, elaborate on that point, what you meant by the kiss of beige and why that's really a critical issue for B2B companies right now. Yeah, well, that report shocked the heck out of me too, because we all were working so hard on it. And to think that that's the impression that's getting left. And granted, it was a small study, but the thing that stood out for me which I pointed out in the piece, was it was all C-level, CEOs, CFOs, CMOs, all C-level that had these impressions of of B2B marketing. And for me, and I see this a lot, I work for most of my clients are enterprise, which means that everything we create has to go through a review process and then it has to make it through legal. The kiss of beige to anything is going through legal. But I think the point I settled on when I was writing about it is this whole risk aversion thing. 
They don't want to do anything that's going to upset anybody. And God forbid we drive away a possible customer. And there seems to be this refusal to put a stake in the ground and say, we are for this particular set of people or this product. If we sell a bunch of products, this particular product is really for this set of people and put a stake in the ground and really speak to those people. It's kind of like, yeah, but what if somebody over here in this other tangential area wants to buy it? We're going to sell it to them. We don't want them to think it doesn't apply to them. And I'm like, but who cares? And, you know, one way to illustrate this is I'm known for persona development and content strategy. I get asked to do all kinds of other things besides that because they're kind of like, well, if you're good at that, you're going to be good at this other thing too. So the problem we have is that it's really hard to talk to everybody and be relevant at the same time. Maybe you're talking to a director of IT. Well, great. If that director of IT works at an enterprise company, their job description is way different than a director of IT at an SMB or a mid-sized company. The hierarchies are different. The number of hats you wear are different. The specialization is different. What they care about, what they're responsible for, and how their performance is evaluated is different. There's a lot of more moving parts in an enterprise company than there is in SMB. You know what I'm saying? So you just can't generalize this stuff. And so one of the things that fascinates me when doing customer interviews and talking to people are the words they use. How do they describe what they think? Because a lot of us internally talk amongst our team or whatever, and we've got our own shorthand for how we talk about it. Nine times out of 10, it has nothing to do with how our actual buyers talk about or think about the problem they're solving or whatever. And so how can we be relevant if we're making assumptions about them? And I mean, it's as simple as sitting in a meeting talking about somebody says, well, we need a white paper. And somebody presents a suggestion. Well, we should talk about blah, 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 because that's going on in the industry. And somebody else pipes up and said, well, heck, I would never read that. Well, who the frick cares? It's not for you. You know what I'm saying to you? Yeah. And so unless your unless your target market is you, your role, whatever, in your industry, then it doesn't matter what you think. I saw another report that came out that said 56% of marketers think their content is really relevant and engaging. And heck, 56% of them also say they read their own content. Well, that should be a sign right there that you messed it up. It's not for you. Right. Right. And so there's all this political stuff going on with companies and what they think and how they posture and territorialism and the way they relate to their competitors. And we don't want to upset the apple cart. And if we take this bold stand, then legal's going to have a fit and so and so is going to react and whatever. And so I'm not saying you have to go out and run around with your hair on fire or anything, but What I am saying is that you need to bring new thinking. So what buyers say is, if you're just going to reinforce what I already know, then it's not valuable to me. I already know this stuff. Tell me something I don't know. Help me think about what's my next step forward or what's coming that I need to really pay attention to or why I should solve this problem when, hey, we've got a workaround. It seems to be okay. What's the big deal? Right. I mean, how do we help them think differently? in a way that is good for them, their careers, their companies, whatever it is. And so the whole thing for me is until you can understand their perspective and how they view it, like, why is it a priority for them? What else is going on? What else is it going to impact? 
at one company when I was doing interviews, what we found was that the reason they were having trouble getting to decision was because of the other stuff implementing the solution would impact, right? It would change processes for other teams and departments as well. And it was just too heavy a lift and they couldn't figure out how are we going to be successful implementing this thing? So it made the risk really high. And they said, you know, mm, we're going to just, you know, do what we're doing because it's just too much. And so one of the people I follow a lot is Hank Barnes from Gartner. And he's done a ton of enterprise customer persona work, which is basically ICP. And he talks about the buying process and talks to a lot of buyers and all of that. And it's really interesting about how unprepared buyers are really to buy. And especially with this pushing everything back to self-serve, right? I'm going to get my own content. It's all, it's all over the place. I can find it myself. They don't know what they don't know. And so they don't know what they haven't learned, right? So Hank talks a lot about the inability to buy just because they don't know mm -hmm. what to do. They need guidance and help and evaluating and, you know, understanding what does it really mean? And are we looking at the right things and asking the right questions and all of that kind of stuff? And then my other favorite thing of late is the book, The Jolt Effect, that Matt Dixon and Ted McKenna wrote and came up with. We focused a lot on FOMO, fear of missing out in the past as marketers. And the new thing now is FOMU, fear of messing up. Oh, so true. Right? If I buy this, am I tanking my career? Right. Or will it hurt my company in the long run and instead of helping it? And there's so much buyer regret out there, mm. you know, which also comes from Gartner. But it's like three-fourths of buyers say, we're not sure we made the right decision after the fact, after they bought it. Mm -hmm. So where are we messing up with that? And one of the things that excites me these days is what a great opportunity for marketing. Right. I mean, what a fun time to be a marketer. And with economic things going on, retention is more important than ever. We've got to start looking across the entirety of the whole customer journey. How can we tell that story across all of it and keep customers engaged, keep net new buyers coming in the door and all of those things? And we have to also realize that those are different stories. That customer has already solved the initial problem you're talking to your net new buyers about. So what's the new value? What's the new story for them? What's their new status quo that we have to help them move beyond? And so I just find it all fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I love you always make the point it doesn't end at the sale. It's a continuum, right? And I think you use the term, you know, you refer to it as a continuum. And so the job for marketers is bigger. The impact is also bigger. The need is bigger. It's a more critical function for the organization, I think, than it's ever been, especially with the shift to digital. And I wanted to unpack first one of the things that you mentioned around the buyer-driven experience or the self-directed purchase experience, which is so accelerated by digital, certainly, because there's this habits and behaviors we become accustomed to as just consumers living our lives and interacting with the world through sort of digital interfaces that that bleed over into how we buy, how we research products and, and function that way. And so you've made a distinction, I think, between being buyer-driven and what many brands like to tell, which is we're customer-centric, right? We're a customer-centric brand. So where do you see the difference between being buyer-driven and having a buyer-driven strategy and being customer-centric happening? I think buyer-driven is 
really interesting because it's what I'm trying to do is get people away from product driven. And so what we tend to know best are our products. And so everything revolves around a product feature and how the product is going to fix your problem and all of this kind of stuff. But yet we're not relating to our buyers and helping them gain confidence, right? Helping them learn more and speaking to them on that human level, right? So one of the things that makes this also a great opportunity for marketing is with all the self-driven stuff, the self-serving content and all the rest of it, is they're pushing salespeople way back in the process. And so marketing can no longer just sit there and say, okay, we got all these form fills. Now you have all these leads that you can go after. We have to actually participate throughout the entirety of the process to keep them moving forward. And one of the biggest challenges I see in all the reports is marketers are confused or challenged to create content for the different stages of the buying process. Mm. And mostly it's because we're not connecting the dots. It's like, what I teach in workshops is think about what's the first question that your buyer has. Let's just say they're looking at saying, why should I care about solving this problem? What difference does it make to me? And then you give them content that tells them that and they read it and they think, huh, that's interesting. Okay. So what about what's the next thing, right? Given what you've just told them and that takeaway that they have from it now, what does it open up for them to And so one of the things that we don't think about is how context shifts, right? So before you know something, you don't have an opinion about it. Once you learn it, then you're able to say, well, that's really interesting. But now that makes me wonder about X. So how do we build that chain where they continue on this journey of learning because we're answering questions that are relevant to them, giving them information that makes them think about new things they hadn't thought about before, and then opens up that space for them to say, okay, so how are companies like ours handling that problem? Really? Well, how long did it take them to implement, you know, or what challenges do they face along the way or whatever, however these things go together. But when I'm building personas, what I'm looking for are what are all the things they had to learn and know in order to move forward and make this buying decision? Mm-hmm. Who else had to be involved? You know, all of those different things. And then you can use that insight to build that storyline in a connected way so that it makes sense. And it's not that you've seen, I'm sure, that spaghetti chart of what the buying journey looks like now and what have you. So it's not like they're just going to go through it linearly. Right. So throw up your hands. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, right. You have to build the story almost linearly because you need to make sure it all fits together. But the way that you link it and distribute it and whatever that allows people to step into the story and then figure out what are the other pieces are missing of it and connect those dots is important. And that seems to be a challenge for a lot of companies. But it's also driven by this executive thing like, well, what's our theme for Q2? Right. And it's like, okay, wait a minute. A quarter is three months. Your bicycle is eight months. And now we're supposed to stop doing whatever we're doing and come up with a new theme and campaign for Q2. And we just got people interested in the beginning of the story. Now we need to keep telling the story. Right. It seems to be an executive thing where it's like, okay, what's our new theme for Q2? And it's like, why do we need a new theme? Well, because everybody's bored with it because they've all seen it. Well, yeah, your buyers haven't. Right. They haven't gotten all the way through it. And so I find myself fighting these battles and 
constantly trying to figure out how do we keep everybody focused on, you know, we, we need to keep people engaged through the whole thing. Now that doesn't mean you can't put out new pieces of things right. that are interesting, but tie them back into the story. How are we going to get people back into the story? So it's just a different way of thinking about it. It's not about the content. It's about the story, the process. What did buyers have to go through to be able to buy? And so everything has to tie to that. And a lot of times it feels like it's check the box. Okay, we got a white paper out the door this quarter. Now we need a webinar and okay, a few blog posts and let's run some ads and get some downloads. And why are you doing it? (laughs) You know, what's the point? Right. We have to get back to purpose. I am with you. I usually visualize this sort of story as an expanding tree, but then you have the merchandising and the connecting of it out there in the experience that your buyer is having, which you don't have as much control of as maybe we once thought we did, but there it functions as a network. It's a network effect. So it's five dimensional. They have to be able to come in and out, but if the content's there, it's there. And I think that gets back to the value of always on content creation, sustained storytelling and evergreen content. Because to your point, it's getting so caught up in production, the production mindset, and we're not delivering a campaign, then what are we doing? Because we need to drive this like spike, right? But how can you instead build a sustainable growth pattern by compounding the effect of your content? And then maybe you have spikes in between, but you're not centralizing everything around spikes. But I think it's really interesting the way you frame the buyer experience reminds me of that internal versus external view. And when we were first doing website building and everybody thought your homepage was the page, and then it turns out people are landing on article pages most of the time, because then it was like, you know, the effect of SEO and that's their first experience. So where are you taking them from the article page? And we still see marketers struggling sort of with the concept because it's like, no, but we built the homepage to be the place that they land on. Well, you don't have that control over what they're going to use and which way they're going to use it. But I wanted to get back to that relevance point. And as you're building personas and doing workshops and working with brands, you mentioned before the language of the customer and how important that is. And so often we see people you're in a workshop with marketers and maybe you're asking them to go through this thought exercise, which is really valuable in terms of asking the right questions, right? And thinking about things in the right framework, but they still might be making assumptions if they've never actually lived in the shoes of those buyers. So it's somewhat of an exercise of imagination. So, and then other other times people are relying on tools that promise the world. We've got buyer intent data. So you're going to be building data-driven personas and this is the silver bullet. And then you outsource to agencies who do all this really expensive buyer persona work that's kind of based on third-party <laughs> research. And do you have to sit down and talk to customers? Are there tools? Are there tricks? Like, how do you approach this? Is it the hard work of doing customer interviews? Are there any shortcuts? How do you collect the language of the customer in a a valid way? Yeah, that's a great question. And quite frankly, I think what's given persona such a bad name is that nobody has taken the time to build them correctly. Mm. Yeah, buy your team a pizza and sit in the conference room and bang it out in an hour. So for me, it's always customer interviews, Mm -hmm. but there are so many other things that play a role. So for example, when I go in to start a persona project, one of the first things I want to do 
is talk to the whole marketing team and understand about their products or services, whatever it is. But then I want to talk to the sales team. I want to know who do they want to talk to, right? Because if we don't get buy-in, it doesn't matter what we do. We've got to kind of all be in this together. So I want to talk to the sales team and I want to get a feel for how well do they understand their buyers? Who are they trying to talk to? Are they successful getting in where they need to? Or are they getting in and then having to move up or sideways? Are they, what's working, what's not working? Any particular conversations that stand out, that type of thing. And I want to get a real feel for, does everybody understand the ICP? Are we all going after the right people Mm -hmm. and companies, customers? And so once all of that is done or while all that's going on, deciding, well, once all that's done, then we say, okay, when I came into this project, you wanted to build these three personas, but now look at what I've learned in all these conversations. I've talked to your executives, your sales team, your marketing team, your product team, whatever. And really we need to focus on, okay, we can keep this one, but these other two look more promising because if marketing can't engage them, then what are we doing, right? If we, you can't just go after, just because sales wants to talk to the C-level, you can't just go after C-level because they're not going to be the ones doing the research and evaluation most of the time, which means sales is going to have to go in through their team and then go up, right? Right. And it depends on what you're selling too. If it's really strategic, I take that back, but most things are not that strategic. And so we have to understand all that. But then once we've decided, okay, these are the personas that make the most sense, Now let's figure out who can we talk to. And I want recent, and when I say recent, it's like within the last 18 months. Because otherwise, even 18 months is challenging sometimes because what happens is people move. So if the buyer has left the company, and now I'm talking to whoever took over after the fact, they don't have the insights that I want from the buying journey, right? So they have to be recent customers, and I also want it to be recent enough that they remember what they did. And so, and I only asked for 30 minutes. I've had to get really good at it, fast at it, because otherwise you can't get their time, right? Right. And this is the most challenging part of the whole thing. Sometimes I can get it done in, you know, six weeks. Sometimes it takes six months by the time I can get them all scheduled and through the interview process. And so it's challenging. And the better relationships they have with our customers, the better off I am. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it helps that I'm a third party and not them asking for the interview. But it's really, I want to understand, okay, what happened on the day everything changed and you said, we have to solve this problem? What happened? Mm-hmm. What did it look like to you? Why did you decide it was so important to solve? What else is it tied to? And all of that. And then start walking me through, well, what'd you do? Who else was involved? What pushback did you get when you were trying to sell this internally? Who else do you have to convince? Who else did you consider and why did you rule them out? What did we do that made the difference? And how'd you buy from us? And I get all kinds of interesting answers. But one of the things I usually do is have several marketing team members from my clients sit in on these calls. And one time there was a the VP of marketing actually sat in and she forgot to mute herself. And so the buyer said something and all of a sudden you hear her gasp because it was so surprising and something they never would have considered. One of the reasons I have them sit in is because otherwise, when I come back with all the transcripts, notes, the report on everything, they don't want to believe it's true. I want them to hear the buyers say it, because I already know it's going to be different. I've done so many of these. Once I've 
done all the internal calls. I know something, you know, something's off a little bit. What you learn is really insightful. But the biggest problem that most companies have is they're like, okay, we got our personas, check the box. And then they go on and do whatever they're doing. They don't know how to apply the insights, which is why I choose to build personas the way I build them, which actually gives them a roadmap to how to execute against what they learn from the persona. But we need to use the insights, not just gather them. I mean, if they don't apply them, what good do they do? Right. I think your framework people should check out because it's so different than how people sometimes traditionally think of personas in terms of a collection of demographics or, you know, and maybe some firmographics, but you're really getting into the questions that need answering. And that's a direct line to what you need to be talking about and the content you need to be creating to support the decision-making process as a brand and, and knock out competitors in that work. Yeah. And then once I'm done with all the interviews, I go do a ton of research, industry research, what have you. And and I do a poll of maybe a hundred people who could fit the persona. And I use a tool called Crystal Nose to look them up, which is kind of an archetype tool and feed them through. And here, when I first started using it, it was really interesting, still interesting. But what I discovered was over the course of several projects, the majority of buyers that fit a persona will generally show up within one the same archetype group. Huh. So Crystal Nose has 16 different archetypes in four different archetype groups. And most often, the majority, like if I pull 100, at least 75 of them will show up really tightly clustered in one archetype group. And the reason that matters is because what I'm looking for with personas, right? You can't interview the whole world and try to accommodate everybody. What I'm looking for is commonalities. What are the things that I can say that are going to resonate the most across the swath of people we need to engage that represent this persona? And the thing that's interesting with Crystal Nose is it, it talks about the archetype and then it gives you a deep dive into what appeals to them, what kind like it's be direct and to the point or they always enjoy a little humor or, you know, whatever, but it talks about what's engaging to these types of people. So it helps you from a tone, voice, and style perspective when you're writing your content. Because harmonizer who wants to help everybody get along together is way different than a driver who's out there, let's get it done, you know, and the same kind of content is not going to appeal to both of those. So it helps to really get grounded in, okay, what applies across And then I'll just do some spot checking on people, do profile searches on LinkedIn for people who could also fit that persona and just check out because Crystal Nose has a LinkedIn plugin. So I can just check it out to do some spot checking and just see, make sure I'm right. But I spend a lot of time trying to validate what I think I'm proving to make sure that I'm not making anything up or leading people down the wrong road because I want it to be really impactful. You know, it's got to drive results or it's not good enough. Yeah, absolutely. And those nuances in terms of language and how they like to consume content and what they kind of tone they're interested in. I feel like these are the new, if they haven't always been, maybe they have always been, but even more at the forefront now with so much content we're competing with. Relevance is the competitive, (laughs) I mean, it's the thing you have to nail or you're kind of dead in the water (laughs) from a content marketing perspective. But I wanted to go back to something else you mentioned, which was related to the risk aversion factor. And you said something really important, I think, 
about having a sort of challenger or challenging point of view, being willing to plant a flag and sort of a lot of B2B, especially enterprises, being really nervous about doing that. And so you end up with this whitewash kind of we drive digital transformation language instead of really compelling thought leadership or really compelling content. So do you have some approaches or a framework that you use when you're training people or helping marketers develop a, here's what a distinctive point of view looks like. It's not the same as having a mission statement. That's not the same as a point of view. It's related, but this is a specific stance. How do you help someone learn how to do that? Well, yes and everything, it depends. <laughs> but some of it depends on how established is the company that I'm working with and how tight are their brand guidelines? Where's the leeway? Or are they in the middle of a reorg? Like you mentioned the word digital transformation. I'm working with a client right now who's Customers are those involved in digital transformation. So they're open to bigger ideas and more expansive stuff. But quite often it goes back to the origin story. What's the company in business for anyway? What big spark happened that Mm -hmm. a lot of my clients are tech, which means a lot of them are not, you know, legacy companies that have been around for a hundred years and whatever. And so there was some spark that happened that said, okay, we've got a better mousetrap for this thing than anything we've seen anywhere else. And sometimes it comes from customers. And when you can prove, hey, our customers are really loving this thing and here's why, then it can help you get grounding for an approval or an enthusiasm for telling a story based on a point of view that resonates with customers. And so a lot of times it comes right out of the customer interviews that I do. And I say, you know, a number of people said these things. What story can we build around that, which makes our POV staying true to our company, but focused on our customers, which is what a lot of people are challenged to do. But it also helps. I've been really lucky that I've had executive sponsors on these projects that have helped push through getting us allowed to do some of these things. Because like I said, legal is the kiss of death. So it's like, you know, they don't want to take a chance on anything that could come back to haunt them. And so it's choosing your battles wisely, I think. But you're going to find more success if you base it in things your customers care about. The only thing to find, the only way to find that out is talk to them. I mean, it just is. You're, you know, helping sometimes brands discover that they have differentiators potentially or value props that they may not even realize, have realized that they had, you're discovering those through interviews. How often do you feel like with the importance of that persona building work, how often do you recommend revisiting? How long do you think that you can, in your typical, you know, B2B situation, kind of run on the same data? Well, COVID changed everything. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> I mean, it used to be that I thought we'd be good for about a year, maybe a little longer. Uh-huh. Now it's kind of like quarterly. Yeah. Every half a year, whatever. But I mean, things change so fast and the economy is up and down. We're at war in a couple of places of the world and, you know, all kinds of things are going on. And But COVID really changed things drastically. So it's like if you haven't updated in a couple of months, you know, right after we were coming out of COVID, you don't know 
what's going on with your buyers because it's all shifting. Now we're looking at, are we going to have a recession? Are we not going to have a recession? Right. And how's the war going to impact things? In fact, I just heard on the news the other day that given the war in Israel, we're probably going to see oil prices go through the roof again because of the Middle East impact. So how does that change things depending on what you're selling, where you're selling, who you're selling to? So I kind of, as a rule of thumb, I'm kind of like, let me talk to a customer once a month mm-hmm. and while we're working on other stuff. Let's just pick a customer. Let me talk to somebody. And if I start hearing stuff that's different, let me talk to some more of them. But it's kind of to keep uh, your finger on the pulse of what's going on with people in your ICP, you know, those kinds of things. Checking in with customer success to see what are you hearing? Are you hearing Things are likely to churn with this type of customer, given what's going on in the world or whatever, you know, why or why not? And those kinds of things. But keeping, you know, in touch with your sales team, we we need feedback loops. And quite often marketing is operating in this silo over here and sales is over there and customer success is over here and product says, oh, by the way, we're launching next Monday. Uh, Did you have a marketing program ready? (laughs) It's like, okay, let's all try to work together. So, I mean, I've worked within companies where I had to introduce the demand gen team to the social media team because they didn't talk to each other. And I was like, how are we coordinating anything? Right. And I just wrote a piece on alignment. It was kind of like, what the heck? This has been a topic of conversation since I've been in this industry, which was going on 23, 24 years now. And why can't we get that right? We're all after the same thing. So why do we have this aversion to working together? I don't get it. Right. Everybody's protecting their territory. They've got different metrics. Your metrics aren't my metrics, so I don't need to devalue other people's efforts. Yeah, there was a time when I thought RevOps was going to solve this. Mm -hmm. And I have even more hope given GTM partners and the analyst firm focused on go-to-market strategy, bringing everything together and helping companies move forward and locked up. So it looks like it's coming around, but it just fascinates me that we sabotage ourselves in so many different ways. Right. On our end, I mean, just with clients and brands, we're interacting with a lot of the triggers for customers coming in and looking towards our services and strategies because there's someone or at least a cluster of people where there's a real desire to break down the silos and achieve that kind of operational transformation, which is so critical. Now I just feel like AI is another big question mark and the way everybody chooses to handle it or adopt it, that's starting to create little pockets. So now they're sort of infighting over the use of AI or not, and it kind of throws everybody a few steps backwards. So I'm interested in your opinion on where, what the implications of things like chat GPT are for even the buyer process. The marketers can't have nice things. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I'm fascinated with it. I'm horrified of this idea that marketers are going to use chat GPT to generate content because it is substandard beyond belief, in my opinion. And I just don't know how that's going to improve anything. And if all of us are now pumping out this content that is, I mean, when you read the stuff that ChatGPT generates, it's so high level. It's, um, you know, it's like content that we 
generate today. You know, it's talking to everybody. It's high level. It doesn't get anything specific. You're not sure if it made it up or not. And you should be questioning that, you know, and there's all, but I'm seeing more and more companies that are creating platforms for marketing using AI in thoughtful ways with guardrails mm-hmm. and different things. In fact, there's a new company that's under seal right now because they haven't come out that I've gotten to see their platform and it's really fascinating. And I'm the one, you know, I don't know if you've seen the blog post that Andy Crestadina wrote about personas with AI, mm-hmm. but he called me up and said, I know you have an opinion on this. And I did. And I'm like, how do you know it's true? I mean, how do you know that those are your buyers? I mean, if you ask ChatGP, tell me what questions a CIO and a mid-size tech company is asking in buying a new CRM or something, how do you know right. that those are CIOs that you could tell to? I mean, where, where does that information come from? Where did it come from? How do you validate any of it? And so that's the problems that I have with that. But I'm seeing some interesting applications. I'm seeing applications, for example, writer.io allows you to pull in your brand guidelines, allows you to an API to your data, your customer data, your content, everything else, and will run its language model against your stuff in addition to other platforms so that you have your flavor in there. And the brand guideline stuff is important. The inclusivity is important, right? So you're not having bias and, and what have you, which we all know AI does. And so I think there's a lot of interesting possibilities. I think if you just take blind faith and say, generate me a blog post and you go and publish it, I think you're an idiot, you know, quite frankly. And I think you're going to end up causing issues. Like in the very beginning when ChatGPT came out and all of a sudden developers realized they had just exposed their IP and code to the large language model right? because they didn't think about pasting it in there. And what does that mean? It keeps it. Yeah, hello. You know, so how do you, and now we're generating those security layers, right? That keeps your stuff, your stuff and doesn't allow the model to learn it. But do you know that's the model you're using? How are you protecting against that? How are you validating that what it's telling you is true when it doesn't give you any reference links or source or anything to what it says? And there's all kinds of stories where I think my favorite one was an idiot lawyer that used ChatGP and it made up the casework that it gave him to prove his case, right? And they found out it was made up. And Mm -hmm. the lawyer didn't even check. I mean, you'd think a lawyer of all people would, you know, be risk averse enough to check this stuff, but they didn't. And I mean, it's just kind of like, whoa, wait a minute, this could get serious quickly. Right. It's kind of blown my mind how how easily people, for the sake of convenience and shortcuts, will hand over the keys, will trust in a technology like that because it's artificial intelligence. I mean, it's a, it's designed to put words together in a certain order, you know, based on a predicted, it's not even designed to like really interpret context in a meaningful way. No, and it doesn't have any empathy. It can't think, but I use it for brainstorming because quite often, you know, it's better than sitting looking at a blank page, waiting for inspiration to strike. So I'll use it for brainstorming. I'll use it to edit a piece I've written Yep, just to see if it can make it better. And things like that, but I don't use it to write things. I won't even have it write a first draft because I spend so much time having to fix it. It's would have been faster just to write it in the first place and then let AI edit to 
make the readability score higher or whatever, right? It's interesting, but there are some interesting applications coming to market and some interesting things already being done. One of my clients has added AI to their platform and, you know, is working with Salesforce as a partner. So they have the trust layers and all that stuff, but they're now able to integrate the data from their platform across the entire customer journey to improve the customer cash to care journey, right? So improving the whole customer life cycle. And so it's interesting, you know, the things that can be done, but it's not without its flaws. (laughs) Yeah, we've been successful in implementing it in our product, but from an atomization standpoint. So always human-generated content is the anchor. But when it comes to reformatting and repurposing, if you're working from the source material, And then you've got the guy, it's ingested, you know, your brand editorial guidelines, you know, calibrated for the right tone, calibrated for style. It gets really granular in terms of the prompt architecture, but you can do a good job of generating iterative assets more quickly, which I think feeds that sort of connected content strategy that most people want. It definitely helps speed to market and feeding channels. Not that that should be the overall objective, but so that you're getting a little bit more out of everything that you're producing. Yeah. And I have this big inquiry. I wrote a piece a while back about what happens when your buyers start using chat GPT. And so really, if a lot of people are saying chat GPT might replace search, you know, I mean, And so what happens if your buyer goes out to ChatGPT and says, I need to replace my ERP system, what should I know? Or whatever. If you're an ERP vendor, are you going to come up? If they say, tell me the top 10 ERP vendors, or who should I consider given my company is 500 people and this much money in revenue and whatever parameters they give it. And a lot of us are having to learn, well, what does it mean to write a good prompt? garbage in, garbage out. So how developed do your prompts have to be? But I even had fun. I went out there and searched on myself as a published author who has podcasts and webinars and speaking stuff and a website and whatever. And it did a pretty good job of summarizing me. And thankfully I came back in the, you know, top 20 list of B2B content. But, you know, it's kind of like there's this whole discussion going on about how we don't want the LLMs to learn our stuff. But yet again, is should there be a strategy in place to where we are making sure that the right stuff gets picked up by the AI so that when our buyers are asking questions, we show up? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's that to think about. And what does that mean? And what would a strategy for that look like? I don't have the answers to all of those things, but I'm playing with them because it's like, it's not going to go backwards. We can't put the genie back in the bottle. Right. So as it gets better and better, how would we feed it what we want it to have that would be relevant to our buyers that would show up when they ask questions of it? in relation. So what does that look like? And, uh, you know, I don't know the answers, but it's one of the things I've been pondering a lot lately. I love pondering that it's a whole other layer of even, you know, revisiting the start of search and are people prompting the same way that they search? People feel like they got kind of voice to text and voice search figured out in long tail. And this could be completely different. It could be a completely different type of habit and behavior that people develop. So 
fascinating to think about. I know I've got you over time, but I was hoping I could keep you for just another second for a speed round, which is sort of our version of the actor studio final questions list, where it's just off the top of your head. First question, as a marketer, what keeps you up at night? Worrying about what it takes to be relevant. Mm. And what keeps you going? Oh, the fun of learning new stuff about buyers and being able to engage them. What marketing term, I feel like you're going to have good answers for these. What marketing term do you love? Well, I'm not sure it's a marketing term, but my favorite right now is experience. What marketing term do you hate? Lead gen. <laughs> like anybody who fills out a form. Yeah, they're a lead. Go after them. Oh, yes. Them, you know? Yes. And then lead gen, it sort of just like cheapens the whole process, right? What emoji best describes the current state of marketing? Oh, I'm not a very big emoji person. Is there one like with hair on fire? And I think so. There's definitely one where the top is being blown, the head's being blown off. Yeah. (laughs) It's just a collective (laughs) boom. And then, you know, this is a little bit of a trick question, but quality or quantity? Quality every day of the week. (laughs) Quality, quality, quality. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Ardith, for, for joining me on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. I hope to have you back again so we can dive even deeper into, you know, what's going on with persona development and talk about some of the developments maybe, you know, that'll inevitably come out in the next three months related to ChatGPT and AI. But it's been such a pleasure talking with you. So thanks for lending your insights to the to the show. Well, absolutely. And thanks for having me in any time. I love these kinds of conversations. So fun. Wonderful. Me too. This is the best part of my day. <laughs> now I get to go back to learning more about my buyers. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right. Thanks so much. And I'll talk to you again soon. You too. Thanks for listening to Content Disrupted, brought to you by Skyward. Stay up to date on the latest ideas and insights in brand building and content marketing by visiting our website at skyward.com. Join us for our next episode, where we'll continue to challenge marketing norms and inspire you with fresh strategies for growing business through brand storytelling. See you there.